This is Silver Star Bible School 2009, <coughs> Day 4, and this is Class 1, led by Brother Ken Stiles under the theme, The Blessing of Forgiveness. And today the title of his class is, Forgive One Another from the Heart. Okay, please. Thank you, Brother Bernard, and uh, good morning, everyone. We will begin with a uh, quick review of the key points that we covered in yesterday's class. Hopefully, you're finding it helpful to uh, connect from one class to the next as we go through this. This is a subject that is a building subject. In, in reality, you'll, uh, it will be helpful to have the information from all six classes to be able to look back and reflect upon the principles that we're speaking of. There's a, uh, a danger of only presenting part of the material and then attempting to discuss it thoroughly partway through. But I, I think it's, uh, it is still helpful to uh, proceed as we are, are doing so, and hopefully you'll see how the pieces all come together. Yesterday we saw in our, uh, our first point that when a sinner fulfills the five righteous requirements, he doesn't earn forgiveness but conforms to the righteous basis necessary for forgiveness to be extended. It's important that we keep that in mind, that forgiveness is not something that we can earn, because some of the things we have said, some of the phrases we have used, some of the implications could wrongly leave a person with the understanding that if we do those five things, then we have earned our forgiveness. We can never earn forgiveness. It is always a result of mercy. Secondly, Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 reflected both the righteous requirements and Solomon's prayer of 1 Kings 8, verse 47. We saw that Daniel recognized where Israel stood. When a person puts on Christ, taking on his life, his love, his name, his character, and his affections, God forgives him in Christ's name and for his sake as a result of Christ's saving work. Substitution doesn't teach forgiveness, rather it teaches debt repayment and undermines the loving and forgiving character of God that's expressed in Ephesians 4 verse 32. The Son, who was the perfect manifestation of the fivefold character of God, the mercy, the grace, the long-suffering, the loving-kindness, and truth, he was the express image of his moral person, the moral person of the Almighty. And it is not coincidental that he was given the special power to forgive sins as a further manifestation of the Father's character. From the cross we saw at the end of yesterday's class, in the midst of his suffering, he forgave those who put him to death as their sin was occurring, setting the standard for our conduct to forgive immediately those who sin against us. So that when someone sins against us, or someone sins against another brother, an evil spirit is unleashed, which disrupts the relationships and creates ill will, hard feelings, grudges, even hatred. Forgiveness, we saw, will eliminate this evil, taking our mind off of ourself and our own hurt and how we have been wronged and redirecting our thoughts to God above. Now, in light of the... Um, comments that arose out of yesterday's class, I thought it would also be helpful to uh, go through quickly just a couple of clarification points. Again, because of the material being 
um, shared with you over a series of classes. We're only part way through, but just to give you an idea of the direction in which we're heading. None of those who put Jesus to death fully understood what they were doing. I think we referenced those, uh, those verses yesterday, but if you wanted to write them down, that's in Acts 3, verse 17, 13, verse 27, and 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. Secondly, we need to differentiate between personal sins committed against us and sins requiring disciplinary action by the ecclesia. So if a brother commits a sin against you that will require further ecclesial disciplinary activity, Scripture teaches us that you should forgive the brother. That doesn't negate the need for that disciplinary activity to still be pursued. But don't link your forgiveness of the brother with the disciplinary activity. Because if you do, you will end up hanging on to the sin for a long, long time. Depending on how that brother responds to the disciplinary activity. Thirdly, Jesus forgave those who sinned against him. Despite the absence of the specific words. You won't find, I forgive them. Recorded by Jesus on the cross. But surely the implication is there because it would have been incongruous for him to make this plea to his father, for his father to forgive them if he himself had not already forgiven them from his heart. When Jesus personally forgave those who sinned against him, their sin wasn't removed. Just as when you sin, I sin against you and you forgive me, my sin isn't removed. It's a personal iniquity. Jesus was emptying himself of any evil spirit or ill will that might have arisen as a result of the sin. The people who crucified Jesus still needed to go through the process of repentance and confession and conversion that we see in Acts 3. Peter does not stand up in Acts 3 and say, I'm here to tell you that you put the prince of life to death, but he forgave you from the cross, so that sin has now been removed. He stands up to tell them that you put the prince of life to death, And you need to confess that sin and acknowledge that you have made the mistake. And you need to repent of that sin and all other sins. And you need to convert to his way of life and change your direction and begin to follow him. So we see the book of Acts is appealing in the initial chapters to those living in Jerusalem who participated in this dreadful act against God's Son. And it's the same way with us, us, brethren and sisters. When others sin against us and we forgive them, that doesn't remove the situation between themselves and God. The five righteous requirements are what a sinner must uphold to be forgiven by God, but should not be viewed as preconditions for forgiving those who sin against us. What we looked at in class one is the righteous basis upon which God can forgive a sinner. And if those five righteous requirements are present, God will forgive that sinner and wipe out their sin and blot it out completely. And the the crimson becomes cleansed. The red becomes white. The conscience becomes cleansed. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that we can take those five requirements and then ourselves apply them to our brother or sister who has sinned against us. And say, I won't forgive my brother until I see evidence of those five righteous requirements. It's a different basis when we forgive others. We don't have the ability, we don't have the power, we don't have the insight as to where they stand on any of those five. 
So that when the Lord Jesus Christ forgave those from the cross, he realized they still needed to make their relationship right with God. But in terms of the sin committed against him, in his mind, he was done with the matter. He had forgiven them. It was now behind him. If you happen to read this morning's newsletter, we would like to commend the author, recognizing that he is a recorder. He is a reporter in these things. So don't hold him accountable for what he's writing. But we do want to acknowledge it was an accurate representation of our thoughts and comments, both in the letter and the spirit from yesterday's class. We, too, must develop the mind that will allow us to forgive those who sin against us, even while they sin against us. The offender's repentance is between them and God, but the offense to us must be laid alongside the offense to our Lord, especially in the matter of the crucifixion, to realize what is required, that should say, regarding personal injury. This does not relieve us of responsibility to help the offending brother resolve issues his offense may have caused in his relationship with God. But it removes the stumbling block our grudge will cause to ourselves and our efforts to gain a brother. So again, we, uh, we commend our brother for his, uh, his accurate representation. Okay, just picking up where we had uh, left off yesterday with Jesus on the cross, having forgiven those who had sinned against him, so that there was no grudge, there was no ill will, there were no hard feelings. The immediate forgiveness that Jesus displayed eliminated any chance of grudge developing. It eliminated the possibility of the seeds ever having been sown. That there's no opportunity for holding a grudge when we have sincerely forgiven a person as Jesus did, because there's no basis left upon which the grudge can be held. We can't envision a greater accumulation of sin and wrongdoing being heaped on one person than we saw what was happening upon the Lord in the last 18 hours of his life. But hopefully we can begin to see the power of the love of Christ reflected in his forgiveness of those people who sinned against him and recognize that that power that allowed him to look beyond the sin, the power that enabled him to forgive them from the heart, is a power, brethren and sisters, that can take hold in our life so that the power of love manifested in forgiveness, which is why we see in the New Testament repeatedly that love and forgiveness walk hand in hand. Paul says, if you want to love a person in Ephesians, then forgive them. Not after they have repented, not after they have apologized, not after they have gone through any other preconditions or prerequirements that you have placed upon them. Don't make them earn your forgiveness. Forgive them, because the power of the love of Christ is at work in your life. If you come back to Matthew 5, verse 44, we begin to see how Jesus can tell us, can exhort us, to command us to love our enemies and bless them who curse us and do it with a genuine heart because we see the value and the power of forgiveness as Jesus practices. In Matthew chapter 5, at verse 44, he says, But I say unto you, 
Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. There is only one possible way to love your enemy. There's only one possible way to do good to them that hate us, to pray for them who despitefully use us or persecute us. We must first forgive them. You won't find the phrase or the word forgiveness in these verses. But certainly it is implied. You cannot hold ill will against a person and be praying for their well-being. We know by experience it's impossible to do. We can try to do it, but we know our heart is not genuine because we are still holding on to what they did to us. But Jesus is saying, let that go. Pray for your enemies. Do good to them that hate you, so that when they sin against you, forgive them. And keep returning unto them good for whatever it is they may return unto you. Don't wait until they've apologized or repented. By definition, enemies and haters and persecutors don't ever repent. (laughs) They don't ever apologize to us for what they do. And if we are to forgive them, should we not be willing to forgive one another? So his encouragement to us is don't wait to forgive. Because if you do, you will never be able to fulfill. Verse 44. If we elect to hang on to the sin and refuse to forgive it until there has been some satisfactory confession and apology on the part of the one who has offended us, we could be waiting a long time. And if we go this route, and many of us do, because we confuse that somehow it would be wrong for me to forgive someone who has sinned because of the damage it may do to the ecclesia, therefore I will hold on to the sin until that matter can be rectified. And what we've ended up doing is confusing two principles, related but distinct. The disciplinary action of the ecclesia needs to take place. But if we combine that with our forgiveness of the offender, then we place ourselves in great danger. Because then we are allowing the spirituality of the person who has sinned, or the lack of spirituality, to determine when and if ever we will forgive them. Christ didn't do that. He didn't wait for their proper response before he forgave those who sinned against him. In the interim, while we are hanging on to the sin and refusing to forgive those who have sinned against him, the the evil spirit that we first felt when the sin occurred and, and all its evil repercussions continue to live within our heart and they dwell there as a constant reminder of how we have been mistreated. Christ never allowed that evil spirit to live within him. It's not a spiritually healthy situation for any disciple to put themselves in as they are harboring or hanging on to sins that have been committed against them. Talk to some brethren and sisters about sins that have been um, happened against them, committed against them in the past. And it's evident by their talk, by their speech, that they are still hanging on to offenses. Some that are 10 and 15 and 20 years old. Because their understanding of forgiveness is that that comes at the end of the process. Jesus says, place it at the beginning of the process. We still hold people accountable for behavior 
that will be detrimental to the ecclesia. But the forgiveness on our part for those who have sinned against us must come up front. Because otherwise at some point the grudge seeds, as I like to refer to them, that are sown when the sin is first, first occurs, those seeds will begin to grow and the roots will take place and the tree will form and the fruit will be born. And you can see the fruit in the hearts and the minds of ourselves or others who are holding on to unforgiven sin. You, you can hear the vindictiveness and the vengeance and sometimes the hatred. Christ never permitted those seeds to be sown. He never permitted that tree to grow. And he certainly never permitted that, that tree to bear fruit. All, brethren and sisters, because we have elected not to forgive the sin against us. Forgiveness changes our heart towards our enemies and towards our brothers and sisters who may sin against us. It removes the resentment if we genuinely forgive them. We, we can't pay lip service to the, to the word or the concept. It's got to be genuine and it's got to be sincere. But forgiveness makes obeying verse 44 possible. You can't love, you can't bless, you can't do good, you can't pray for someone against whom you are holding a grudge or harboring ill will. It can't be done, at least not with any sincerity or with any integrity. And notice in verse 45, because we are able to forgive and because we are able to treat our enemies and those who persecute us and those who do ill against us in such a fashion, he says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So that when we learn to forgive and to love those who hate us and despitefully use us, we are beginning to learn what forgiveness is, as how the Father practices it. Recall that his, one of the reasons that he forgives as he does is because of his character. And when we begin to develop that character of mercy and grace and long-suffering, forgiveness and, and uh, loving kindness and faithfulness, when that character begins to be developed in us, then we can begin to forgive those, even those who sin against us, even those who are our enemies and treat us poorly. Jesus is not the only one that we see manifesting this ability and this learned ability to forgive immediately without waiting for an apology or the, the evidence of repentance from his detractors. Jesus stands as the model, as we said yesterday, for other believers. So we see Stephen standing virtually in the same place as our Lord at the end of his life being put to death by his persecutors. Now, he didn't go through all of the suffering that is recorded of our Lord. But there he is in chapter 7 of verse 6, verse 60. While he is dying, while he is being stoned in the midst of his agony, again, while his perpetrators are sinning against him, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Forgiveness, even under the greatest of trials and circumstances and persecution, is the right path to take. That is what Stephen is teaching us about forgiveness in his death. He forgave his detractors immediately. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't wait for an apology from his murderers. 
He didn't wait for them to repent. In his death, he held no grudge. He sought no vengeance personally. He left the matter entirely in God's hands so that when he fell asleep, there was no anger in his heart. Again, I must ask myself the same question regarding Stephen that I asked myself yesterday regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. If Stephen could forgive those who were putting him to death, is there anyone who could do anything to me that ought to prevent me from forgiving them? Immediately. Is there any other righteous path other than immediate forgiveness? And the lesson of Stephen is the same lesson of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when I take my humiliation or pain or public shame or slander or false accusation or whatever it is, and I lay it alongside what Stephen suffered and saw him, a righteous servant of Christ, forgive those who put him to death. He is teaching me of the need for forgiveness. So that we need to recognize what both Christ and Stephen understood. The persecution they suffered was not happening outside of the control and awareness of God. And this is where we're now going to talk about forgiveness taking place within the context of faith, not merit. Christ and Stephen forgave those who put them to death in the context of faith, trusting themselves to God not because the people who they forgave deserved to be forgiven. God's will called for both men to be put to death at the hands of wicked men. God was accomplishing great good in the death of Christ and great good in the death of Stephen from the evil that was being committed against them and they understood this. And because they saw the good that would be accomplished out of the evil, they could rightly commit the situation to faith. So that both men responded by faith, even to asking for the forgiveness of their murderers. But Stephen wasn't the only other example of a believer who immediately forgave those who sinned against him. We have the reference in 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, Recounting earlier events, states at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men, all brethren forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Here he is at the end of his life, and he is quoting Stephen's words. But he heard Stephen speak at the end of his life when he says, I pray that God will not lay it to their charge. So here is the former ex-persecutor citing the righteous response of the condemned man Stephen when Paul was facing a similar fate himself. No one had stood with him, but he had already forgiven those who refused to stand with him. He didn't wait for their repentance. He didn't wait for their letters of apology. He didn't go around to each of the ecclesias and say, why didn't you stand with me? He forgave them from his heart. So that it isn't a coincidence that we see these three righteous men who understood the need for forgiving others immediately. The standard of the Lord Jesus Christ became the standard of Stephen and the standard that Paul embraced. 
But it's not just these two additional examples. Work out in your mind when you think David forgave Saul. Surely it was not when Saul apologized to David for all the ill that he had brought into his life. For David to be effective in Saul's life, for David to be helpful to God and God trying to appeal to David, David had to forgive Saul of all the sins that he was committing against him. And that's what happens, brothers and sisters, if we won't forgive those who sin against us. God can no longer use us in that person's life. So if you have an ecclesial registry and you have those against whom you will not forgive sins that they have committed to you, you might as well just cross off your name, their name on your list of those that you can be helpful to in the ecclesia. Because if I'm still holding a grudge against certain members in my ecclesia, they know I'm holding a grudge. And I can't pray for them. I can't be helpful to them. I can't help return them to righteousness. They can tell it in my handshake. They can tell it in my hello. They can tell it in the cold shoulder I give them when we're in the same room. But God wants us to be helpful to all, especially, especially to those who have sinned against us. Because a spiritual man or woman who sins against a brother or sister and sees them turn a cold shoulder will respond in kind. But if I know I have sinned against you, and I know that you have forgiven me, and if I am a spiritual man, that will impact me for good. If I'm not a spiritual man, I will take advantage of you, and I will probably sin against you, and I sin against you, and, and, and that's the part that we commit to faith. There were many, many, many that day who had put Christ to death, and they died, never having repented for what they did. But for the ones who repented, they were benefited by seeing the spirit of this man impressed upon those closest to the cross who could respond to his trial in the way that he did. If we turn back to Genesis 50, I think it's helpful at this point to look at another specific example of an Old Testament character. And how forgiveness became a power in their life for good. So that the spiritual principles surrounding forgiveness and the divine expectations that God establishes for us and the wisdom of those expectations, especially as they relate to forgiving one another, become evident in the life of Joseph. We see the ill will, the evil spirit that is unleashed when a brother sins against another brother. Or in this case, when brethren sin against another brother. It would have been natural, it would have been understandable for Joseph to develop hatred for his brethren. And if not hatred, at least to hold a grudge against them for all the ill that they had done to him in chapter 37. But brethren and sisters, we don't find Joseph holding even a grudge. Reflecting even the seeds, even the traces, the hint, the, 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 the smallest hint of holding a grudge or seeking vengeance. He sought only their eternal well-being. Thirty-nine years later, they are still concerned that he will hate them after Jacob dies. 
So it shows you the intensity of the evil that they committed against him. And as they reflected upon that, 39 years later, they are still concerned that he might harbor ill will towards them. Secondly, we see the many benefits of forgiveness, the multitude of sins it covers, how forgiveness heals and restores relationships that otherwise would certainly have remained broken for the rest of their life. Sin destroys relationships, even between two otherwise spiritual people. It leaves them unable to talk to each other, unable to interact, to interact with each other in a meaningful way. One person won't have anything to do with the other person over some sin that has occurred in the past. No doubt the sin was grievous. But also no doubt when there is a sin that is developed between two brethren or a brother or sister or between two sisters, even when it was grievous, and that still exists years later, that is evidence likely of two things. One, there has been no forgiveness. And secondly, there has likely been no apology. But forgiveness can restore a broken relationship. It can heal a wound. It doesn't ignore the sin. Well, I'll just pretend they didn't do that to me. And then they'll do it again. And I'll just pretend more. I'll, they do it again. And I'll, I'll just I'll have the most pretending you could ever have. Forgiveness doesn't pretend the sin didn't exist. Forgiveness removes the sin out of love because a greater power is introduced into the situation and into the relationship than the sin. And if they sin again, I forgive again because the power of the love of Christ will always be greater than the power of sin. We have to believe that because you couldn't have amassed any greater sin against the Lord Jesus Christ and his love overcame the power of that sin that day. Peter has difficulty with this concept, as we'll see in a few minutes if we get to there. But that is the life that our Lord calls us to. And you can see it manifested in the life of Joseph. Who else in Scripture would, be, would have been most justified in holding at least a small amount of grudge against his brethren? There is wisdom in forgiveness. Oftentimes it's the only thing, the only thing that can right a wrong. For the person who has sinned against to forgive and to focus instead on the restor restoration of his erring brother. Forgiveness is exactly what the situation needed following the events of chapter 37. It was the only way to restore Joseph's brethren to righteousness. If he pursues any other path than forgiveness, he will be no value to them and he will be of no value to God in helping return them to righteousness. And, and you see the wisdom of forgiving those who sinned against you immediately. You, you don't wait for an apology or you don't wait for their repentance. Work out in your mind where in the account in Genesis Joseph forgives his brethren. He certainly didn't wait until they had confessed their sin to him because they don't do that until chapter 50. And there's no way Joseph could have treated them the way he did with the love that he did if he waits until chapter 50 to forgive them. He certainly didn't forgive them when they apologized 
to him when they first came down to Egypt in chapter 44 because they didn't even know he was there. So all that Joseph does in aiding his brethren is done by a man who has already forgiven his brethren. It wasn't their apology that produced the tears that it did in chapter 44 when he sees Judah being willing to offer his life for the sake of Benjamin. The tears flow because he could see that Judah and the others were now becoming spiritual men. And it wasn't a case that time simply passed and that allowed Joseph to forget all the evil that had been done to him. Time wouldn't heal the level of evil committed against Joseph. And the brethren make that statement in chapter 50 when 39 years later they are still concerned we treated him so poorly that now that Jacob is dead, he may take advantage of us. And brethren and sisters, we can commit evil against one another that can last a lifetime. But Joseph did not commit the situation to time. Verse 15 of chapter 50 says, And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. As an aside, this shows us that Joseph never spoke to them of their evil treatment once they came down to Egypt. He never revisited it with them. Not because he was harboring it in his heart, and waiting for them to make the first move. It's because when we forgive a person, as Joseph forgave his brethren, you don't bring the matter up again. You're done with it. Finished. It's all over in your mind. It doesn't need to be revisited. You don't need to talk about it again. You don't need to bring it up. You're not looking to exact some payment after the forgiveness. If we shouldn't be looking for payment before the forgiveness, we shouldn't be looking for any payment after the forgiveness. You don't recall the sins because they've been blotted out. Some evil is so vile that after 39 years, it's not enough time to forget the pain and the suffering. But the love of God, the love of Christ the love that Joseph had for his brethren, adopting that love that is based upon the character of God, that love can overcome the evil that was done. It was the love that allowed Joseph to forgive his brethren, and it's the love that can help us overcome sins against us. We must not consign the evil done to us to time. Even the world has their statement that given enough time, the worst of enemies can eventually become friends. Because memories fade and you forget the intensity of the anger and the intensity of the pain. That is not the love of God, brethren and sisters. Don't take the sins that are committed against you and commit them to time and hope that 10 or 20 years down the road, if you're still alive, and the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet returned, you will be able to find it in your heart to forgive those who have sinned against you. That is not the love of God. That's what our natural heart wants to do. We just don't want to face the situation. It's not what Joseph did. 
Certainly not what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Forgiveness, as God defines forgiveness, is not the result of lots of time and fading memories. It's the result of love. It's how the Lord Jesus Christ forgave. It's how Joseph forgave. It's not a coincidence, as we know, that Joseph's entire life is recorded with so many exact parallels with the life of Christ. So it's not a coincidence that we find Joseph having forgiven his brethren who sinned against him so grievously as they did in the exact same manner that the Lord Jesus Christ forgave those who put him to death. Joseph must have forgiven his brethren long before they arrive in Egypt. And the purpose, sorry, the basis upon which his forgiveness was able to be extended, I think is recorded in verse 20 of chapter 50. It shows that he had worked out in his mind that God was orchestrating the events of his life to bring about great good. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring it to pass, as it is thus this day, to save much people alive. God had used their evil intentions, as we know, to save the family. Joseph recognized that God is so wise and in control that he can use the evil that others do against us to save us. See, our natural reaction when that evil comes in our direction is to respond naturally with resentment and anger. But a spiritual man or woman will come to the same point of understanding as Jacob did, as Joseph did in verse 20. They will come to see that God is using this evil to save me if I respond to it faithfully and if I forgive the evil that is done against me. Joseph could never have been helpful to them upon their arrival in Egypt, especially in coming to terms with their past sinful behavior if he had not already forgiven them. And, and we can't be helpful as we say to one another if we can't forgive those who sin against us. And, and brethren and sisters, make verse 20 personal in your life. Recognize the principle that is there. I know it doesn't mention the word forgiveness, but it explains why forgiveness is so important. So if there is a brother or sister in your ecclesia, or somewhere in the community, or some other person in your life, that you have not yet forgiven for whatever reason, for whatever evil they have done against you, apply the principle of verse 20 to your situation and recognize that God is using that evil that was done against you to hopefully save you if you can respond properly to it. And if it's a brother or sister, he will be using that evil to hopefully save them. But it's critical that we respond in faithful obedience, just as Joseph did. Where would Joseph have been had he not responded in faithful obedience by forgiving his brethren? He would have been in the very same place as any other brother or sister is who fails to forgive. Lost and enslaved to the sin that was committed against them. So if, brethren and sisters, we have not yet forgiven anyone in our life for the evil they have done, verse 20 remains unfulfilled in our life. 
Joseph forgave his brethren with a purpose to save them. It's the same reason God forgives us. And there's a marvelous scene that's portrayed in verse 50 when the brethren approach Joseph following Jacob's death. And it is all only possible because Joseph had forgiven them. The events from chapter 42 to chapter 50 in Genesis would not have taken place the way they did had Joseph not forgiven his brethren before they arrived in Egypt. God would have had to use someone else to accomplish the good he did and the conversion of his brethren. Had he not forgiven them, he would not have been useful to them. Jacob is nearing death, and it's evident that Jacob and the brethren spoke about the situation and Joseph's future treatment of them. The family has been living in Goshen. Joseph has been living in the capital. And it's evident that Joseph and Jacob never discussed this matter because it wasn't an issue that Joseph was looking to pursue. So Jacob offered his counsel to the brethren to help ensure family peace in verse 16. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. So Jacob Jacob doesn't know, just as the brethren didn't know, that Joseph had already forgiven them upon the principle of verse 20. That's why he has to share with them when they raise the matter with him that he had forgiven them long ago because long ago he had come to understand that the evil they were doing against him God was using to bring about great good. And then a most wonderful thing is recorded in the text because in verse 17 it changes. And note the change. And now we pray thee Forgive the trespass of thy servants, of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. They are finally confessing their sin to Joseph. After 39 years, they are finally asking him to forgive them, without realizing he had forgiven them long ago. And they declare themselves to be servants of the God of Jacob. These are spiritual men who stand before Joseph. They didn't see themselves as servants of God back in chapter 37. But they do now. And it's little wonder that Joseph breaks out in tears as they spoke. And the marvel of it is, brethren and sisters, is that arising out of the confession of the brethren and Joseph weeping before them, there are the brethren falling down before his face. And there is Joseph standing before them. And they are declaring themselves to be servants of the God of their father. And his brethren, in verse 18, also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. So they are God's servants, and they are now Joseph's servants. And there is the fulfillment of the dreams of chapter 37. The brethren are willingly prostrating themselves before Joseph and declaring themselves to be his servants. They were a living fulfillment of the dreams living proof of the accuracy of God's word, the word that they had once mocked. And there is Joseph standing before them in tears, rejoicing over the fact that these are now now truly his spiritual brethren. And this is the spiritual foundation upon which the nation will be built. So that Genesis ends 
with twelve men, one recognized as the spiritual leader because of his character, recognized as the savior of the family because of his character, and the other eleven are standing around him. No, they are on the ground prostrated before him. When they heard the dream back in chapter 37, they heard it as worldly men. You're going to reign over us? God's going to take one of us and make him domineer over us? Isn't going to happen. And they rejected the dream. But you see, God didn't give Joseph a dream of how one day he would be a Gentile tyrant and he would rule over his brethren. God gave Joseph a dream that one day, Joseph, you will be the savior of your family. And your brethren will willingly and lovingly bow down before you and recognize the spiritual headship that you will provide for the family. That was the dream God gave Joseph. It wasn't anything about a Gentile tyrant. The brethren didn't understand it, and we tend to interpret the dream as they saw it. That is not the dream God gave Joseph. God gave Joseph the dream that one day the scene that we see in chapter 50 would take place. And that's the dream that Joseph held on to. One day this family, as misguided as it was in chapter 37, will be united on a spiritual basis, and it will then be prepared to be developed by God, to become the spiritual nation that God had intended. And so the book of Genesis ends with the family at its spiritual zenith. And it was all made possible because one man responded to great evil that was done to him in his life. And he was able to rise above the evil and recognize that God was going to accomplish great things and the evil that has, done, uh, has been done against me. The key to being able to immediately forgive those who sin against us is faith. Faith is the key that makes it possible trusting that God will use the evil done against me, regardless of whatever it is, and, and my faithful response to that, to work out great good for all those whose hearts are genuine. As he worked out great good in the life of the Lord Jesus, and in the life of Stephen, and in the life of Joseph, if I can believe that as Jesus and Stephen and Joseph believe, then I can forgive by faith, as they did. But if, when I am sinned against, I am preoccupied with the evil that has been done to me, and the steps that need to be taken to correct someone else, and if that's where my focus is, I will never be able to forgive. But if I can forgive by faith and trust, God will take my faithful obedience, my forgiveness of the evil, and work out great good. That makes it possible for me to forgive, regardless of the sin done against me. So it's not a case of me gritting my teeth and saying, okay, I am supposed to forgive this person because I'm trying to forgive them in my own strength. And it will never happen. But if I take the situation of the evil done to me and put it in the context of faith, then we see the possibilities develop for us to forgive immediately, trusting that God will work out great good. 
Four times in the New Testament, Christ underscores the need for us to forgive others who sin against us. Otherwise, our sins will not be forgiven. The first account is in Matthew 6, verses 12 to 15, during the Sermon on the Mount when he gives us the model prayer. And as we sung in our hymn, he connects the need for our daily bread with the need for our forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So there is the need for daily forgiveness, to be able to maintain daily fellowship with the Father. If we are in need of daily bread to sustain us physically and spiritually, then we are also in need of his daily mercy. And it's not coincidental that he connects our willingness to forgive others with our ability to be forgiven ourselves. And he recognized, the Lord did, the difficulty in this. Because in verse 14, immediately at the conclusion of the prayer, anticipating how difficult it is to forgive others. He says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. So he goes right back to the heart of the issue. Forgiveness, Jesus says, has to be extended on the basis of God's character, as we have seen. If the person fails to forgive others for whatever reason, whatever reason we can conjecture, or whatever reason we can devise or design, then God will not forgive us. And the reason, brethren and sisters, hopefully we're beginning to see, is a person who refuses to forgive his brother is refusing to take on the character of God. He is saying no to the mercy, no to the grace, no to the long-suffering, no to the loving-kindness, and no to the truth. That is not going to be my character. And a person who adopts that attitude, God says, I cannot forgive. I will not forgive one who refuses to take on my character. In the model prayer, our sins are portrayed, as we know, as a debt owed to God, so that sins are linked with debts, both here and in the parable of the unforgiving creditor. It doesn't mean that a debt redefines sin. But what's being portrayed for us is our debt is like a payment that we owe to God that we cannot pay. Sin leaves us in a position in which we are powerless to be able to extricate ourselves. And if you trace through the words for sin and debt, as it is in the account of the model prayer in Luke, you find that the words are used interchangeably. The second example of the need for us to forgive one another is found in Mark chapter 11. It's the uh, day three of the final week. He says, when you stand praying, if you have ought against any, in verse 25, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. So when we view Mark 11 along with the model prayer in Matthew 6, what this is telling us is every single time we ask for forgiveness, every single time, we need to make sure that we have also forgiven all those who have sinned against us. 
So brethren, we ought never to pray that God will forgive us without also acknowledging the need to forgive those who have sinned against us. Because it is the Lord that connects those two aspects of forgiveness. If you have ought against any, which means any sin that has been committed against you, and you have ought as a result of it, against any one, Christ says, we need to eliminate that from our heart and our mind. And the wisdom is that it will provide no opportunity for any grudge or any ill will. Because every day we are asking for forgiveness. And every day we are asking that God help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. So it leaves us each day, if we are faithful, free, free from any of the evil spirit from any of the grudge that is normally associated when those when others sin against us in Luke 6 at verse 37 he says judge not and you shall not be judged condemn not and you shall not be condemned forgive and you shall be forgiven and the word there if we were to trace it through means to fully forgive as the woman who was loosed of her infirmity was fully healed there is no partial forgiveness but again, the only way we can come to forgive others is to forgive them by faith. Forgiving others when we are sinned against should be the first thing that we do in that situation, not the last.